0: Brexit and British defence, what's the connection? Meanwhile, France and Germany are signing a new friendship deal, should the rest of us be nervous. Terrorists hit a Nairobi hotel, 21 dead so far, and the war with Islamist militants far from over. And the Royal Navy is back in the South China Sea, and the Chinese don't like it, but the Japanese do. It is 71 days to go until Brexit. This week MPs voted against Prime Minister Theresa May's deal. She won last night's vote of no confidence but has until Monday to come up with a plan B. Should there be a no-deal Brexit, legislation is in place to call up reservists to support regular and civilian personnel. The order is made under the Reserve Forces Act 1996. Well, our reporter James Hurst has been talking about this to former Chief of Defence Staff Lord Richards.
1: Well, I think that it's a belt and braces measure. Um, Don't forget, reservists do, or amongst the reserves, are some... pretty rare capabilities uh, that the regular armed forces might only have in small numbers. So uh, you can draw in civilian uh, skills uh, more readily in this way. And if I was the government, uh, I would have this up my sleeve too. It doesn't mean they'll be deployed. Uh, and that, of course, none of this means any of them will be deployed, but I think it's a sensible measure.
2: I mean, you were leading the armed forces at the time of London 2012 when... 17,000 members of the forces uh, were brought in to help with security. How does, how does this compare? well the scale is less
1: and let's hope it stays that way uh, because of course the spectre at the feast is um if, if it goes wrong or you know perhaps if there's a second referendum that we will see social disorder uh and i think that's getting more and more uh, a worry to people and the armed forces could be dragged into that but
2: that's a that's that one w- issue that would be problematic wouldn't it putting People in military uniform on the streets, that would suggest loss of control and, frankly, could inflame the situation.
1: It could, and the armed forces would be very, very reluctant to become involved. I don't see it's likely, but uh, if one or two of the doom-mongers are to be believed, and the scale of social disorder, say, in the failure to come out of the European Union, the 17.4 million beta for doing, you only need, I don't know, a couple of hundred thousand, a small proportion of that, to... Act up, and the police could start to have a problem. But I think to be, this is one end of the spectrum. I don't
2: see that as likely. But in terms of you know the more routine, the more likely things, helping deal with traffic queues, yeah. airports, the notice period for this is is pretty short. But then the notice period on 2012 was short. It was probably
1: shorter, actually, and I've no doubt that the um, armed forces have already been
2: doing some planning. If it comes to it and the armed forces are supporting civil authorities in the event of a no-deal Brexit, how long could they sustain that for? Well, it's a good question, um, because the armed forces, uh, and
1: i take the opportunity to remind anyone who's listening, are too small. They're be, be, be well below the level they're meant to be at. And so that is one reason why the reserves have been called out today or been put on notice today. Um, and I, I I think we could go on doing it for a, a while, but something else will have to give, not least um, families who won't see... Uh,
2: will see even less of their, their, their spouses than they do already. Let's talk about the political process. We've gone into deeper uncertainty almost over the past few days. Is there a scenario that you think might be the best for the defence of the realm now?
1: Well, it, it's, a, it's a very good question, and I, I openly will concede that as a member of the House of Lords, I voted for Theresa May's uh, deal... Um, One reason I uh, voted for it, though, is because it gave us certainty in terms of our security relationship with the EU, which is going to be not in, but working with them closely over the years ahead, not least through our combined membership, in most cases, of NATO, which remains
2: the bedrock of our security. So if we were to move to a no deal on the 29th of March, how concerned are you about how different that would be about what might be taken away from our relationship with Europe in defense
1: Uh, well i am concerned um i mean at the end of the day good people on both sides of the channel will do what is necessary to preserve the security of our populations Um, and i reassure myself that we worked in a very collegiate way both militarily and through policing and customs for example before we join the EU. So I have no reason to think that that won't continue, but there is going to be a period
2: when it's highly disrupted, unless we get on now uh, and sort it out. If we go to no deal, what do we lose? Is it influence? Is it involvement? Is it technology? Well, we, look. Uh, if even
1: with a deal, we are coming out of the EU. That's what the majority of our population voted for, and it, it uh, includes um, some things that you might say are on, uh, involved with defence and security, but not in most cases. We won't be part of the what's known colloquially as the EU army. Um, and, but I don't think we wanted to do that
2: anyway, even if we were remaining within the EU. We won't, though, be part of EU research and development on new defence technologies. Well, actually, there's no reason why we shouldn't have
1: some sort of relationship with that work but that again has not been negotiated and of course the EU themselves are somewhat reluctant to allow us but I mean those things
2: are all going to be negotiated. In the agreement that Theresa May reached there were promises of working up a continued relationship on intelligence sharing. Uh, How important is that intelligence sharing to specifically defense rather than policing? It's very important when I
1: was commanding ISAF in Afghanistan, um, you know there was complete uh, um, openness between the various countries and NATO. but and I would emphasize it's still NATO so uh, rather than just the EU. But I, I think one reason I voted for Theresa May's deal is that all these things have been taken into account in that deal and will continue to work properly. So if we
2: lose intelligence sharing when we leave the EU, because we still don't know how we're going to leave, uh, how, how damaging would that be or not? to well, defence? OK, well, it, it would be damaging, although
1: our most important uh, intelligence relations is what's known as the Five Eyes, the English-speaking uh, nations, which you, you know who they are. So we're not going to lose that. Um, and, of course, we will continue to cooperate in defence through NATO. So it, it, whatever processes that the EU and Britain uh, might have that are separate from NATO may be separate. Uh, but I don't really see any reason where, why where, why good people wouldn't continue to sustain it in all our interests.
0: Lord Richards, former Chief of the Defence Staff, tweaking there. Well, Christopher Lee, our Defence Analyst, is in the studio. Good to hear from him, wasn't it, Christopher? What do you think about what he said?
3: I think what he, um, one of the things he was saying uh, was why he had voted to go from the EU, and that he said he thought that it would make a guarantee a certainty about future defense arrangements for example the position within nato uh, and not be involved in this thing are they or are they not uh, in in some form of euro defense um the other part of it you know the, the thing about uh, intelligence they're uh, not going to lose intelligence the intelligence thing is still... You know, if there's a big thing of tension, for example, let's say between East and West and the old sort of Cold mm-hmm. War style, uh, people are all going to get together and say, what are you here? I mean, it's not a question of saying, well, we're not talking to you because you're, you're not in uh, uh, Europe any longer. But the other thing is, what do you do with the with the reservists that you might call up, say, for a period? Well, immigration, transport, security, uh, command and control, offshore defences, offshore, uh, offshore guarantee of shipping, for example... And uh, also things like immigration in terms of uh, languages. There are A lot of uh, linguistic organisations in the in the services which you don't get elsewhere. So you, it, it it is quite a quite is quite a big thing to do, and it's been done lots of times. The big difference is is that the regular force is now three quarters the size as they were when it which was done is originally. is a
0: point he made, isn't it? Um, we also heard this week that uh, just over a dozen uh, military personnel were being seconded to different departments within the government. To help out, to help with the planning in the event of a no deal Brexit, what might they be bringing?
3: Well, they're bringing the fact that they they are above all whatever you, however you describe them, they're very good civil servants because they used used to working in, in in government departments, and so therefore you can shift somebody off to the you know Ministry of Ag or whatever it is now or Environment, and they know how the system works, and it's just backing up when when governments got to got to put together different preferences of what they might be doing let's say, immediately after March the 29th. And this is it. And the government will have to work quite differently after the 29th than they do now. And these people have the, the wherewithal upstairs. To be able to say, right, if we do it this way, we can shortcut.
0: Well, as Britain attempts to extract itself from the EU, France and Germany are gearing up to sign a new treaty which will forge closer ties between the two countries. They're planning to have joint defence, foreign and economic policies in a so-called twinning pact. This could see them present a united diplomatic diplomatic front and act jointly in peacekeeping missions. Well, Jonathan Isle is Associate Director at the Royal United Services Institute. Jonathan, this treaty is due to be signed next week what's the reason for it?
4: Well there's actually two reasons. The first treaty between France and Germany, the sort of foundation, if you will, of the way the European Union has worked ever since was concluded in 1963. And I think there is an agreement among uh, both the French and uh, the German politicians that has been superseded by events. A lot of the stuff there was aspirational and it was really intended to get two nations to talk to each other and forget about their their. Hor- historic past none of this is required now so there is a feeling that you need stronger and more modern foundations to the relationship between the two but let's not uh, uh, try to hide the fact that at the end of the day it's also political messaging with Britain leaving the European Union there is a feeling that whether the French or the Germans want it or not and the French clearly do the Germans less so they are now the to use the cliche motor of Mm. Europe and it's up to them to to propel Europe forward.
0: Yes that that was going to be my next question the timing of this is it it's not just a coincidence then.
4: None at all, not at all. And in fact, almost everything about the next Tuesday's event is carefully choreographed in order to convey the appropriate message. Uh, There is a joint meeting of the two Cabinets. There is going to be established a sort of quasi-parliament across the borders, which will meet twice a year, decide nothing but the mere fact that it is meeting is intended as a message. And of course, the meeting in the city of Aachen, the the, the heart of the old Charlemagne Empire, Empire, which used to sort of control more or less the territory of the two states almost everything right down to the color of the pens with which the treaty will be signed will be carefully choreographed
0: and what about other EU countries are they happy about this can they join in too
4: well this is this is one of the big problems about the Franco-German motor as it were uh, it is uh, very difficult to see how you can get decisions in Europe without the two countries agreeing but it is increasingly difficult to see how they could themselves on their own push matters forward and the problem for them is that they are becoming an exclusive club which is increasingly resented by other largest European states Spain for instance Italy but also by groups of smaller states. There is a deep suspicion in uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, for instance, the new member states about where the Franco-German uh, uh, alliance is taking Europe. Is it taking it in an anti-American perspective? Is it taking it in a more appeasing attitude towards Russia? Is it taking it into a more corporatist economic management? There are very very serious problems and the, this is the problem with exclusive clubs in a way uh, they may be useful for the two countries. They're mm. not terribly interesting for others. Christopher
0: Lee.
3: There There is here also something which is I mean, quite h- historical in as much that Europe is changing, nothing to do with Brexit, but Europe is changing anyway. Mm. Uh, the, the self-assurance of France and Germany has never been doubted. But... Everything that we do, we have to realise that when people set up, say, an alliance like this, which is historical, has historical basis and is just renewing it, it's, we seem to forget that sometimes these people are members of other organisations. Now, you take the EU as an example of this, that many members of the EU are also members of NATO. Um, therefore, there is not just political trading, but there's a political understanding and the one of the champions of, uh, of, of, uh, of, of NATO and the EU together, uh, the late Lord Carrington, said, there are people, we walk into meetings, we sit down, and we've just come from a meeting where we were sitting next to the same people. Europe is much bigger than the titles of some of these organisations and, and alliances tell us it is.
0: Uh, Jonathan, the Germans are hoping they will get a permanent seat at the UN Security Council. What do you make of that? Is that likely to happen?
4: Uh, of course, it's not likely to happen for a variety of other reasons, including the fact that the Chinese are not likely to want to open the question of membership, if it entails then that Japan or India, for instance, will demand the similar status which they will. Um, but you 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 pointed to something that is a sort of a fairly sensitive point in the Franco-German relationship. The Germans have said that since it's unlikely that they will ever be admitted as a permanent member of the UN Security Council, despite the pledge that. They the French are going to make next week on this subject. Why doesn't France consider, for instance, transforming its seat into a European seat? That, that suggestion was made only recently. The French reaction was, of course, one of utter mm. indignation. So, uh, again, we have a statement, an aspirational statement in the treaty that is not likely to amount to anything much for a long period of time and papers over quite a lot of differences.
0: All right, Jonathan Isle, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you for your time today. Sit Rep with Still to come, why did an SAS man get mixed up in the Nairobi shootout? VFES Sit Rep. Nine people have been arrested in Kenya after an attack on a luxury hotel compound in the capital, Nairobi. At least 21 people died in the attack, which Somali-based Islamist group Al-Shabaab claimed it carried out. Well, let's talk to the BBC's Africa correspondent, Andrew Harding, who is in Nairobi. Hello, Andrew. Uh, Just tell us a bit more about Al-Shabaab and what they're doing in Kenya.
5: Well, they're a big, um, extreme Islamist militant organisation, fundamentally based in neighbouring Somalia to the north of Kenya where they still control chunks of territory, towns and cities and have done so for many years. Uh, But increasingly they've begun to get involved in Kenya. They have a big local organisation, if you like, an al-Shabaab presence, homegrown within Kenya. Uh, But particularly after 2011 when the Kenyan army uh, moved across the border to secure its border. Uh, and get involved in the internal civil war, if you like, inside Somalia. Al-Shabaab has seen Kenyan targets, the Westgate Mall in 2013, two years later a university in the north of the country, as legitimate targets and have begun striking uh, Kenyan targets quite frequently.
0: So they see them as legitimate targets. Are they an easy target?
5: Well, the Kenyans have had a reputation for a long time for being pretty disjointed, fractious within their security community. We saw that at the 2013 Westgate Mall, which lasted four days, the siege there, and much of that time was taken up, we understand, by Kenyan troops and Kenyan police forces fighting each other, then looting the expensive mall, and then blowing part of it up to try and cover up their tracks. So they emerged from that. Profoundly discredited, their troops operating in Somalia have also had suffered huge losses. Their, their bases have been overrun by Al Shabaab. In one instance, up to 140, maybe even 180 troops killed in one incident. So they don't have a great reputation. But in recent years, the Americans, the British in particular, have been advising them, training their security forces, and it seems this time round they did, did
0: do a much better job in containing
5: and dealing with this incident.
0: Yes, Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is listening to this. Christopher.
3: Listen, I'm, I'm, I was just thinking, Andrew, about um, the whole colonial history of Africa, um, and it's still plodding on after the original um, people, uh, France, Mali, places like that, responsibilities. And somehow Kenya, for the, for the British, is, is, is the place... Uh, there's always a training operation going on there. There's always a sense of well, that's you know you send you send your young possibilities to Sandhurst, etc. Uh, this long arm of of colonialism uh, stretches stretches and isn't that thin?
5: It's true. Um, Kenyan troops have used uh, sorry British troops have used Kenya for for so long as a training base up around Mount Kenya and so on. I, I wouldn't say that the British military presence in Africa and those colonial links are as established and cutting edge, if you like, as they are for the French in West Africa, where we've repeatedly seen French special forces, French troops intervening within a matter of, it seems, almost minutes or days in in places like Mali, as you mentioned, um, and in Cote d'Ivoire. But yes, the British do have... Uh, a strong presence here and increasingly they are involved in training special forces and trying to help what has always been this this country that's always been seen as as the one stable place in a very turbulent region and therefore a launch pad for for british interests for british security interests and and for americans dating back to the cold war of course when you had the Soviets up in Somalia, then in Ethiopia, and all these interests where Kenya seemed to be the frontline place for for Western interests.
0: And, Andrew, we saw this week that a serving member of the SAS understood to have helped in the rescue of hostages in Nairobi. Um, I suppose, given what you've said about the training of special forces in Kenya, that doesn't particularly surprise you?
5: No, I mean, it was extraordinary that he happened to be on hand he was off duty, but he was clearly not far away because he was seen arriving at the scene really within minutes of the, the first explosion, the, the suicide bomb, and then the, the four terrorists who, who followed that into the compound. He arrived, we, we understand, he very quickly consulted with some plainclothes Kenyan security officials at the scene who perhaps were even expecting him, and then very soon he was leading some Kenyan forces into the compound and it seemed pretty clear to those who were there and I, I didn't arrive at the scene at that point it seemed pretty clear that there was very close coordination and that this time round there was no confusion between different branches of the Kenyan security forces
0: All right, Andrew we'll leave it there for now thank you for your time today that was Andrew Harding the BBC's Africa correspondent speaking to us from Nairobi now the United States and Britain have conducted joint naval exercises in the disputed South China Sea for the first time since China built islands bases there. The US Navy guided missile destroyer, the USS McCampbell, and Royal Navy frigate HMS Argyle are the ships taking part. Well let's talk to naval historian Professor Eric Grove. Hello, Eric. What sort of exercises are these hello, exactly? Hello. Hi. Hi.
6: Well I mean that Argyle has been out there to engage in, in exercises with various nations to show that Britain is still at least attempting to be an actor in the area. It had some exercises with the Japanese Navy and the Americans and now uh, like HMS Albion did last August has gone into the South China Sea to demonstrate that we're with the Americans in trying to engage in freedom of navigation operations and so that we don't accept the the dreaded nine dash line which the Chinese put on their maps to say they have sovereignty over the entire area which is the international court said yeah, a couple uh, of years ago, is totally illegal.
0: Uh, Eric, you say that Britain's attempting to show it's an actor in the region. You're not convinced then?
6: Well, I mean, we would, I'd, I'd be more convinced if we had more than 19 frigates and destroyers and we weren't facing the Russians in European waters. I mean, in many respects, it's very good, and I know that Queen Elizabeth is going to go out there, the new aircraft carrier, uh, in a, in a year or two's time and it'll be interesting to see if she goes into the south china sea as well and there is talk of a far eastern base being it in singapore or even perhaps in japan after all we fought the korean war from a base in japan so there's nothing in a sense new in this but it, it strikes me a little bit of a sort of back to the future you know now now we're leaving europe we're trying to be a global power again which i'd be more convinced about if we had rather more forces
0: Christopher Lee, um, just tell us a bit more about Japan's interest in these exercises.
3: Do you know, the, the uh, Japanese Prime Minister was in in London a few days ago, Shinzo Abe, uh, and uh, the Prime Minister, uh, Mrs. May, broke off the Brexit stuff to talk to him about security. Um, if you go back to 1902, when you had the Anglo-Japanese uh, uh, agreements, we have this close connection, you wouldn't believe it, with the history of World War Two close agreement and interest with, with the Japanese. Now, the Japanese at the moment are in, in the position they're buying five, uh, F-35s. they can be have more F-35s than the United Kingdom are. There's going to be joint missiles which for the F-35s, which the British and the Japanese are getting yeah, for, for, for for construction. There is to be uh, an, a naval base which the British will use the way they use the base in Bahrain uh, in, 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 in Japan, one of the Japanese islands, I think, Honshu. And um, this goes on. The British now regard, and the Prime Minister has said so at that meeting she had with him, which was at Twickenham, hmm. uh, and that's because of the Rugby Cup final. Um, but it, it was... it was, it was. She says that Japan is now the most important Far Eastern or Oriental ally that the United Kingdom has. And this becomes even more important when you'll find out by the end of this month, when I think there's going to be another uh, meeting with the North Koreans that there's now a greater interest in what's going on with uh, chemical warfare. Uh, The Japanese are very concerned about this because they could be the first victims, and so they want good allies. They regard the United Kingdom as a good ally. And I think the small number of ships that go there doesn't actually matter because you've only got a six-ship exercise and the United Kingdom is supplying two of them, and that's the Argyle and also also, uh, sea support in it. That's not bad at all.
0: Professor Eric Grove, how bothered are the Chinese about this kind of exercise?
6: Well, they're always angry when people dispute their uh, illegal uh, attempt to uh, control the South China Sea. And the more people who they see ganging up with the Americans on this, the less they like it. And to some extent, it's very part. Well, it's, it's part of this confrontation between the Americans and the Chinese. I mean, I think we're on the right side in many ways. The only problem is, and it would be it'd be great to have a base in Japan again. It's just the number of forces that we can actually deploy. Right, hang all, on, that's not
3: a base in Japan. That's a Japanese base which will have uh, access Jap- to.
6: Okay, fine. But you know, but yes.
3: But you don't. Know, but, you know. but
6: But, but <laughs> I mean, it, it it sounds great. But on the other hand, we had problems way back in 1941 trying to reinforce up. Our- position in the area one doesn't want to be overextended again if we can do it properly fine if we can help contain china's illegal ambitions fine but i do i do worry about the forces that we have to actually sustain that
0: yeah Uh, so just tell us how much do you think we would need to be able to sustain that eric
6: a rather larger navy than 19 frigates and destroyers and even two i mean the aircraft carriers fine and if we can produce the core of some kind of task group or operate with, with the Americans, that's great. But we need, if we're going to be a global power, we need to rebalance our armed forces. It's my old story. Hmm. We need to, I'm afraid, reduce the army, increase the navy. And I know I would say that. But actually, if you want to be a global power, you need major naval forces. And we need to sustain them the navy, navy at its current strength increase it and if we can become a global power again well and good nobody will be more pleased than me if i could say it
3: it's not gl- being a global power is it it's force projection that's what we're talking about working well with... it is
6: but, but it's force projection across the globe i mean you know i mean we are now moving back back into the far east i mean in the in, in the bad old days when the soviet union was a really serious threat then we had to concentrate all our strength much greater than we have now in europe European waters. Now the, now the Russians are coming back. They need to be confronted. And confronting the Russians is going to put considerable strain on our very limited forces that have been cut back far more than they should have been. So therefore, we have to think through the implications of doing what we would like to they do, and the implications are that we need a larger navy and more flexible power projection forces.
0: Okay, in that light, Christopher Lee, um, this is the first time the U.S. and Britain have conducted these joint exercises in the South China Sea. How much further might this go? Will it be it's continuous?
3: Red- it's going to be a continuous. It'll, it'll be happening um, sort of like this time next year. They're going to, I think it's going to be eleven. There are going to be eleven exercises and, of, of different forms, but they'll have at their base the commanders in chief of say the american forces in that area and and, and the pacific command as well. So th- this is this is more of a concentration it's actually saying to the chinese just watch it. You know, we we reserve the right mm. to plow our way through. And in the night
0: uh, Is that what they do? I mean, what do they actually do when they're on this kind of exercise? Well, well they you say they the reserve normal... the right, the right yeah. to plow through. Well, is
3: it's, yeah, <laughs> I mean, you, you, you don't go into into territorial waters, mm. but you reserve the right uh, with local people, that's why. And the Japanese have got support ships in this exercise as well. And it's to show that you're in support of the Japanese. And the Japanese are quite sort of... They're sort of quite nervous of their, of their security position. They look at what's going on in Washington at the moment and they can't necessarily guarantee that that the President Trump will always be, you know, run to their beck and call. They look at what's happening in, in North Korea at the moment and they think that could be very damaging for us. And so they want... they they want friends and you know the United Kingdom can send Argyle and then Montrose Type 45s it's not a bad thing to be able to do.
0: And on that note, we'll leave it for today. Professor Eric Grove, thank you very much for your time. That is all we have time for. Have you got an opinion on today's topics? Any of them? Tweet us at BFBS SitRep. Remember to subscribe to the podcast so you can never miss an episode. Just search for BFBS Sit Rep. I'm Kate Jabot. Thanks for listening. I'll speak to you same time next week. Bye-bye for now.
2: On digital radio, FM, and satellite TV in the UK.
0: Online and on air, around the world. This
2: is Forces Radio,
3: BFBS. From the Sky News Centre at 7.